Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's November 21st, 2018, the day before Thanksgiving. I'm Charlie Sykes, joined by Jim Swift of the Weekly Standard and Christine Rosen, the managing editor of the Weekly Standard. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, so it is the day before Thanksgiving. President Trump's lawyers say he has submitted his written answers to special counsel Robert Mueller. We don't know what they are. New York Times is reporting that Trump wanted to order the Department of Justice to prosecute former FBI Director James Comey and Hillary Clinton, but that he was talked out of it by White House Counsel Don McGahn, who, by the way, is no longer around. And I want to get back to that a little bit later. Uh, Another Republican congressman goes down, Mia Love, apparently has lost her race in Utah, which is, I think, really unfortunate because I thought she had the potential to be a rising star. And it would have been especially sweet if she'd pulled out that race after Trump dunked on her. But it really does highlight the fact that House Republican women just suffered a bloodbath in the midterms, losing about half of their members. Um, I haven't looked at it this morning yet, but the stock market gave up its uh, 2018 gains yesterday. Uh, the opposition to Nancy Pelosi seems to be crumbling as Marsha Fudge drops out. Check back in a few days on all of that. Uh, we are getting some of the details of the domestic violence charges against Michael Avenatti. But I'm really not clear where this, where you know, internet troll Jacob Wool comes into this. It, you know, it, it, Avenatti was tweeting out the Jacob Wool, which d- he doesn't look at all like this this Hollywood actress. I don't know. So, uh, but let's start with the president's uh, statement on standing with Saudi Arabia. Six hundred and thirty-four words of compressed Trumpism, and I will be really honest with you. I, I'm I'm not kidding when I say that when I read this. I really thought it was it was a parody. And in fact, I thought it was a crude parody. I didn't think because there are so many of these websites out there. I didn't think it was possible that the White House could put out something like this. And of course, everybody's read it by now. Right. After my heavily negotiated trip to Saudi Arabia last year, the kingdom agreed to spend and invest four hundred and fifty billion dollars in the U.S., which by the way is BS. This is a record amount of money. It will create hundreds of thousands of jobs, tremendous economic development, and much additional wealth for the United States. And then he goes through the crime against Jamal Khashoggi was a terrible one and one that our country does not condone. Indeed, we have taken strong action against those already known to have participated. Representatives of Saudi Arabia say that Jamal Khashoggi was an enemy of the state and a member of the Muslim Brotherhood. But my decision is in no way based on that. This is an unacceptable and horrible crime. And then it goes on to say, our intelligence agencies continue to assess all the information, but it could very well be that the crown prince had knowledge of this tragic event, dash, maybe he did and maybe he didn't, exclamation point. Okay, that's as much as I can take on this. Uh, Who wants to talk about this? Even the Wall Street Journal editorial board, uh, this was a bridge too far. They have an editorial, Trump's crude real politique. Uh, his statement about the Saudis had no mention of America's values, but it was it was pure undiluted Trump, wasn't it? It, it was. And, you know, I, some people were saying it was a parody. Some thought it was like a, a childish grade school paper. We have a frequent contributor, Gerald Beer, who um, is a, a great, uh, great researcher and writer. And his personal blog uh, was something that his dad told him to speak with authority. And this statement lacks authority. And while I, I'm not trying to toot my own horn as a great writer, I don't consider myself a great writer. I'm pretty average, but I do do a lot of time. I do spend a lot of time editing. And as I was reading through this, I see a bunch of these sort of like weird crutches that you shouldn't be putting in your writing. As an example, on the other hand, 
Um, you know, <laughs> the, uh, that exclamation being, point. That being said, you know, all all of these sorts of things where you, you like, if anyone with like even decent editing skills would go over this, they'd just be crossing these things out. And um, it's I. I don't know where it came from, but it does not come. I mean, it comes from WhiteHouse.gov, but it does not come as the reader it's sounding that it is authoritative. It's full of weasel words. And uh, after reading it, you kind of feel there's this great missed opportunity for Americans to gather around Thanksgiving, you know, post meal and kind of do a surreal Mad Libs version of the statement. I think that would actually be a more useful exercise than taking any of this at face value. Um, but it does, speaking of authority, I mean, it does kind of make the path extremely clear now for Congress, right? They're going to have to act because this is not the kind of leadership we need right now on Saudi Arabia. So there's there's a debate post-Thanksgiving brewing for Congress about what they're going to do. Yeah, they'll, 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 they'll drop the ball, I'm guessing, though. I, I, was, I was struck by how strong the Wall Street Journal editorial was, given how they provided cover for the president on so many things. We are aware of no president, not even such ruthless pragmatists as Richard Nixon or Lyndon Johnson, who would have written a public statement like this without so much as a grace note about America's abiding values and principles. And then it also talks about, you know, his citation of, you know, how much money that $450 billion number, which apparently he's just simply made up. From Mr. Trump's point of view, U.S. interest in the Middle East can be reduced to arms deals, oil, and Iran. That is crass. No other word suffices. Okay, I want to make the point. I only want to make one point here, which is that as bad as this is, I actually think this statement is worse than people have said. And running through all of the things about how juvenile, how crass this statement is, what really strikes me is the fact that it was released in the first place. Just bear with me. Remember all of those stories that we had about the adults in the room and when they come out, they said, wow, you have no idea if I wasn't there, if you know what he would have done, what he would have said. I'm trying to imagine the circumstance in which no one, whether it's you know the chief of staff, Don Kelly, whether it's Mike Pompeo, whether it's John Bolton, none of them had the willingness or the ability to say, you cannot put that out or, 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 or let me work with this a little bit. I mean, you think about the implications of this, how many stories we've had of crazy crackpot things that were stopped by the staff around him. But this statement tells me there are no more adults around him or no more adults who have the clout or the willingness to say this would be a disaster if you released it. It's I'm I'm a new parent, <laughs> unlike uh, Christine and, and you. But it's someone who's you know learning about parenting and managing, and I, I I hesitate to use that as example. But there is so much childishness in this administration. It, it maybe it's like the parent that's given up. You know, you're at the supermarket and the kid is just being like a terror, and you know you, you see parents and sometimes they overreact and other sorts of things. And there are some parents who just accept it and you know try and make sure that you know that when they walk down the pickle aisle, you know. Uh, we aren't smashing jars, but other than that, you know, <laughs> and, and that, and, and maybe uh, that's maybe. where maybe that's where we are. In um, you know, you can't stop him; you can only hope to contain him. But only even then, so maybe sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Um, I was reading, I think I was uh, mentioning right before we we started this podcast, before you came in, uh, Christine, um, that I uh, had just ordered online this uh, this book, Night of Camp David, that Alice Lloyd writes about in the the, the magazine. This is a re-release. I've I've actually never heard of it before. Re-release of a 1965 best-selling political thriller. This was by the author of Seven Days in May. And it's basically this 
you know, a fictional account of what would happen if the president of the United States went stark raving mad. <laughs> and they've decided to release it now. And uh, I did download that on on, on Kindle for um, reading a little bit later this week. Uh, you, you know, one of the things I always do, I've done as long as I can remember this, the four-day weekend, uh, Thanksgiving weekend. I, 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 I try to, uh, you know, step out and basically do binge reading. You know, that's that's kind of morphed into binge watching. But, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get back to actually reading books, which is kind of a radical concept here. So this is going to be one of the books that I'm going to read. I've also pulled down um, a number of books. And I'm, I am open to suggestion because I've, I've started reading uh, about uh, about the, the – depending on how you want to pronounce it the, – the Dreyfus trial from the 1890s, mm-hmm. uh, the, the trial of the century, Alfred uh, Dreyfus. It, and what got me going on all of this was uh, the, the piece by Ann Applebaum that she wrote, uh, I think it came out in the last uh, two weeks, where she describes that as sort of the model of all of the the tribal uh, contention of, of the 20th century, that you have all of the elements there, you know, a heated uh, trial in which, uh, you know, people lined up on one side or the other, you were either pro-Dreyfus or you were anti-Dreyfus. And in the way that that played out and, and how familiar it seems, the patterns that we have right now, and uh, the, that, that in a lot of ways, we, we you know, really haven't come as far from that moment as, uh, as we would have liked to have seen. You know, there's really a great novel about that. Have you read this? There's a novel about the, the, the Dreyfus case. It's called uh, An Officer and a Spy. Mm. And uh, it's a you know for people who are not necessarily you know e- immersed in all of it, uh, um, it really is kind of the, the the pattern of you know the where the, the the facts and the actual you know guilt or innocence is important obviously, but it sort of becomes subsumed in these larger cultural clashes that you just sign up with red team or blue team. So anything else. Uh, you have a piece up uh, today, Jim, about uh, the new millennial version of Monopoly. Now, I, I, I do have I do have millennial kids. Oh, by the way, how old? What is the definition of millennial now? Anybody it, can help me with this? Isn't it like 1977 to um, like... Was it, is it that? Is it that late? I thought it was the 80s. Um. Okay, so 80s. some say eighty-one to ninety-six. Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, the nineteen eighties and and mid nineties. Oh, I'm, what I'm thinking of is Zennials. Zennials, yeah. which I, yeah. I, I I identify a little bit more closely with, are like seventy-seven to eighty-three. Mm. Um, but you know, Holmes. The, the, I play. I forced three of our younger writers uh, to play with me yesterday uh, a game of um, Monopoly from Millennials in the office, and Holmes and I were talking about this today. Um, about streaming versus download. You know, a lot of these folks don't own DVD players and they don't own DVDs because, you know, they grew up with smartphones. They grew up with cell phones. They grew up with streaming, whereas us older folks didn't. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I mean, there was Napster. People were stealing stuff. And, you know, you, you would buy DVDs and you'd play them. I mean, it, it just... None of this stuff really existed. So I think there is a really big divide. So I, I, I don't self-identify as a millennial. Um, but, I, you know, if you're going to hang a label on me, I guess technically I I, I, uh, I count. So is this worth it? Is, is it actually worth it to go get the millennial monopoly? If you see it at what, Walmart for $20 or 1982, get it? Because, that, you know, Ugh, that's, that's the – Such know. pandering. <laughs> <laughs> if, but, if, but, but it does not involve real estate. I thought there are no houses, no hotels – 
it basically says, forget real estate. You can't afford it anyway. Do they buy avocado toast? <laughs> like, what is it that they buy? Touche. <laughs> uh, there, there, there is, there are, there are avocado jokes uh, okay. in this. Like, there's avocados, I think, on the five dollar bill, um, coffee on the the twenty, and then um, sustainably harvested coffee. Clearly, yes. uh, so there's yeah, there's no real estate. You go around the board and you discover experiences, and you can <laughs> you can own the experience and then if someone else lands on it they have to pay you for the experience and then you get this <gasps> it's like it's like being an instagram influencer yes. uh-huh. and then you get this little chip that has a it looks like an instagram logo and each person gets one of these chips and you, at the end of the game they each have little values on the back so when all the experiences have been discovered you add up the value of the experiences you own or discovered first and then all of the little chips and then that's how you win um, but so instead of Mediterranean Avenue, you can crash on parents' basement. Instead of boardwalk, there's a week-long music festival. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and one of my criticisms of this to make it into the piece, because I think it's, it, it, is, it is a fun game. I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of traditional Monopoly, uh, is that it could have been meaner. Um, I saw all of these reviews saying, uh, you know, how uh, I said hashtag butthurt um, these these writers were, but they were they were whoring out for clickbait. So I said, screw it. And I bought the game and we played it and it was fun. And what was interesting about it is, I mean, it, it, it's faster. I mean, one of the things people play Monopoly a lot over Thanksgiving. It takes a long time. It takes forever. And, uh, and this game, uh, you know, really can't last longer than an hour or so. Um, <laughs> but one of the interesting things that I, I found in this, instead of the transportation things like the railroads, it's bike share. And if you land on it, you have the option to pay $10 to jump to any property between um, – the ne- that and the next bike share. If you want to go past that, it's an additional $10. But you could basically pay $10 to get yourself community chest or chance. Or you could like pay $10 to get to a property um, that could earn you more, po- more points that you'd buy. Or later, you could pay $10 to like skip boardwalk and um, mm. you know park place, if you will, or the, the three-day music festival um, and pass go. So you'd be hedging. You'd be like sacrificing the money, half of the money you'd get to pass go not to get nailed for you know th- twice as much, so that it it does change the dynamics of the game, and none of us really um, were able to take advantage of that and kind of abuse that. But you know, it's 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 funny. I mean, uh, people shouldn't take this so seriously. So, uh, okay, the mean the meanest card in the chance pile says, "You took a trip to find yourself. You didn't lose a turn." That is amazing. I love that. <laughs> That's great. And I have, by the way, Charlie. I and and this actually does speak to the millennial question too. I have a book. That that has a political link that I think you should uh, add mm-hmm. to your list of of uh, week long weekend reading, and that's if you remember Stacey Abrams during her not a concession speech mm-hmm. said something that really struck me um, that's been bugging me actually for a few days now when she said stoicism is a luxury, and I realized that um, yeah exactly mm-hmm. um, so it, that bothered me and and um, I wanted to recommend actually Princeton University Press is putting out this series of um, uh, guides that are based on ancient writings and one of them is on Epictetus. And it's called How to Be Free, an Ancient Guide to Stoicism and, and Stoical Thought. And it's fascinating. Um, highly recommend it. It's, it would be – it's the perfect length, length for a weekend read. But it, Really? Yes. And it, now, but see, it reminds you, you probably us. don't realize this, but I'm, I'm actually fascinated by Stoicism. I really do have, have a ton of books on this. Okay. This is um, when you should That's exactly add the kind of collection. thing that I'm looking for and, 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 by the way, need. Yeah. It's wonderful. And one of the things that contra Stacey Abrams, it's all about how um, – you know, th- this is a philosophy that was developed in part to liberate the thinking and the mindset of people who 
had very little control over their circumstances. It, it was, in fact, a, a, the antidote to um, people who live in luxury. It was it was an argument that you know people can society culture people can steal many many freedoms from you, but they can't steal uh, your mind. Your mind remains mm. free, mm-hmm. it, depending on the perspective that you foster and cultivate as a human being. So it, it it's I think um, I, I give a modest suggestion as the antidote to the Stacey Abrams view of the world that uh, we all go back and reread some Stoics. This was also. I think a spot on the Monopoly board, you know, about discovering yourself. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really, I'm just kidding. Uh, okay, the, the the one thing that I I want to move on from 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 Monopoly, but um, you you do get a get a, get out of free uh, get out of jail free card, and there's also a card that reads, "Your mom posts bail; she's the best." And instead of committing a crime, you go to jail if you draw the card that says, "You literally can't even pay your student loan bill. Go to jail. Go directly to jail. Do not pass go. Do not collect twenty dollars." And then you point out that our colleague Alice Lloyd at that point asked you if Monopoly was the source of the idiom she'd heard about not passing go. Yeah, she'd never played Monopoly before, and I I, I ran it by her. Um, you blew her mind. Hash, mind was hashtag blown. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the funny thing is that's how you start the game is everyone has to say who has the most student loan debt, and that person gets to roll first. Um, so I thought that was funny. Uh, before we jump, Charlie, uh, speaking of social media, my book recommendation is The Circle mm. by Dave Eggers. Um, Christine has done a lot of stuff on the the, the perils of social media and is, a, is an expert in that field. Don't watch the movie. The movie sucks. Uh, but the book is hmm. the book is good. And um, if you know if you buy into it and get hooked, you you can finish that in a day. And even good. if you don't like the kind of Dave Eggers twee uh, stuff he's done and other stuff, this is a really it's a it's a great read. I agree. Yeah, you're you're saying that because I once confused Andrew Eggers for Dave Eggers, right? It's a good compliment on the on the on the, on the, on the podcast. You know, Christine, I'm I'm, I'm still thinking about uh, the Stoic books, and this is this is one of those those moments where you realize that you know that that no matter how good your intention to be more stoical and more philosophical. The way that I'm probably going to read that book over the weekend, I will read it and I will think, you know, that this is exactly right. This, this is exactly how to, you know, control your emotions, to control your own mind. And then while I'm sitting there, I will pick up my phone and I will start scrolling through Twitter. (laughs) No, I, this is the, I'm not kidding. I just, it's the, it's like, you know, if you just shut out all of these distractions, you know, and, and realize that, uh, you know, your your happiness depends on your philosophical approach as opposed – and then before I even finish that sentence, I'm probably going to be back on Twitter because <laughs> that's where we – It's a very anti-stoical medium. <laughs> the, exactly. It's just like what is wrong with us as human beings? But, of course, this is the problem is that we know – what we're supposed to do, and then we just don't get around to doing it. Okay, now um, we we had a brief conversation before about uh, about Thanksgiving, and I mentioned, uh, boy, I should not do this, should I? This is this is. See, I'm I'm about to do something. I know what you're thankful like, for. I y- yes, exactly. <laughs> Going you around a large attitude, large group of people, and one at a time, you have to stand up and say what you are thankful for. And and my and this was when I was much younger and much much more obnoxious and. You know, for me, this was like, what fresh hell? You know, 
Yes, the, the 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 kind of compulsory gratitude gestures. You know, people now have their gratitude journals that they're supposed to write in every day. And Oprah tells us to live our best life by being grateful every moment and thanking the universe, thanking the guy who poured you your coffee, et cetera, et cetera. But this is good. This is I, good I suppose, advice, right? Is, I mean, in, in a vague sense, in theory, but in practice, there's a kind of defining gratitude down, right? If you're grateful for everything, how do you actually judge um, what is good and what's not. And as Jim has uh, reminded me, it's it's what the the hashtag blessed on Instagram or Twitter is always pointing out, which is that it, there's there's a performative ac- aspect to this gratitude that is the opposite of the sort of humble and truly grateful uh, attitude that we should be cultivating, particularly at this time of year. Can I tell you my favorite bill from when I worked in Congress? It's Thanksgiving in related to this, Charlie. A constituent had written one of my bosses asking him to co-sponsor a bill called H. Conrez 404 in support of a complaint-free Wednesday. So this takes it a step further. Some nonprofit wanted to make today, the day before Thanksgiving, a complaint-free Wednesday. So not only can you not complain the day before, you are more hashtag thankful on actual Thanksgiving. But to Christine's point, Everyone is so thankful and hashtag blessed for everything right now. I mean, has, has that undermined Thanksgiving? Hmm. Well, you know, I, I do think this is something that we don't do well. You know, speaking of, you know, f- f- you know, our philosophies, we actually, you know, do take too much for granted. And, and there's something to be said for stepping back and going, OK, you know what? You know, there are people who've just lost their houses in fires. We don't live in Bangladesh. We, you know, don't have, you know, uh, journalists are not being dragged off and uh, and, and shot in this country yet, quite yet. And, you know, and, and, you know, perhaps we haven't been as a country. We are whiners. We are, you know, too prone to, uh, you know, focus on our our navels and all of those things. So gratitude is a is a good antidote to, I think, a lot of the whining I'm a victim culture that we have in this country. On the other hand, when you have to perform, I think that's that's maybe where I think you still have to draw the line. Well, and, and in a way, you got to think of how Americans tend to celebrate their holidays. And Thanksgiving is a uniquely American holiday. But its origins and its history are very practical. It was about not starving. And even today, the, the fact that one of our major rituals, besides stuffing ourselves with, with lots of delicious food, is that the president pardons a turkey. So we celebrate not with gratitude, but with, look, we didn't kill this thing. <laughs> Yay but us. But of course we did. <laughs> well, right. And then <laughs> we all go home and, and eat the murder turkey that were killed by others. So I, I feel like there's there's a kind of pragmatism about American sensibilities towards celebration and holidays that's that's uh, that I appreciate. So I think that's why the, the forced gratitude um, is an effort for us to 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 be more thoughtful. But as soon as it's forced, it it, it becomes a parody of itself. I would I would say um, I too have been drafted into you know going around the table thankful rituals. And there's always you know there's always that member of your extended family who's been preparing some heartfelt you know speech about this for months who who gives this glorious thing that leaves everybody in tears. And then the next person's like um. Yeah, uh, I'm glad that I didn't get hurt in my basketball game last week. Like, I mean, you know, it's really awful because the stakes are either way too high or far too low. Pot may be legal here, and I'm I'm not high, but it reminds me of you know the old the old sort of question about the Grateful Dead: Why were they grateful? <laughs> Makes you think, man. Especially when they were were, were dead. So yeah. So when did marijuana become uh, legal in, in the in, in the district? I think it was like the beginning of this past year. 
Yeah. Huh. It's terrible. Okay. It's, ter- it's terrible, it's, man. It is. It's awful. It's not a good thing for this city, which has enough well, problems. Well, okay. Why not? Okay. So one of the things – I mean I live in the district, so I can, I can complain about all of this um, – it's led to, you know, people are allowed to have a certain amount now, a small amount for personal use, but there are all kinds of regulations and restrictions regarding that. Like you have to consume it in your own home and it's still not supposed to be done out in public. Well, there are neighborhoods now where you walk down the street and it just, the whole sidewalk reeks of pot mm. smoke. And, you know, you're walking there with your kids and they're like, what's that funny smell? And, you know, they're, they're teenagers just getting completely stoned on the sidewalk. And that's not really what the point of legalizing small amounts of marijuana was supposed to uh, encourage. Yeah, you're sitting in a restaurant and someone, you know, a close, like Post Pub is the bar near mm-hmm. our office where a lot of us will, will go for lunch or for dinner or have a beer. And it's, you know, it's a small bar, but someone comes in and they've been smoking pot. It's way different than smoking cigars or cigarettes mm-hmm. as someone who smokes cigars. That person reeks. And if they sit down like next to you, I mean, literally, yeah. it's like you are, uh, you're transformed in having lunch into a marijuana dispensary. Oh, dude. Um, you, we, we, have we ever talked about edibles, though? The warning about edibles? <laughs> This is very important, actually. Um, and, and Maureen Dowd, I think, did a, a national service when she pointed out uh, – when she, when she described her experience. And the, the problem with edibles, of course, is that if you eat them, whatever the amount is, nothing happens for two hours. Now, you, it's pretty obvious what could go wrong here, <laughs> including the, hey, I'm not feeling anything. Let me have another one. Or, hey, let me uh, mix the Chardonnay with all of this. Or, um, and then, of course, you know, you end up curled in a, in a fetal crouch. Uh, you know, and, uh, hey, I got to take my kid to urgent care. I oh, gotta, crap. I got to draft a <laughs> statement about Saudi Arabia. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, on, on, on the other hand, is, is it possible that, that this will make the District of Columbia a more mellow place? Would this, in fact, mean that your Thanksgiving dinner might, you know, your your stupid uncle who wants to engage in a in a fight about something or other that uh, you you might not care quite as much? I, I don't no? think so because you know D.C. is is just packed full of you know earnest former student body presidents and so they've got to do pot right like they got to be the best at pot you know so it's going to mean like we have these you know completely ridiculous dispensaries popping up we're going to have apps to drone deliver your high i mean it's going to be it's just going to be awful <laughs> drones delivering your high i'm just just speculating there <laughs> okay so Rand people Paul's have nightmare. to still pee in cups to get jobs you know, one of my previous jobs, you you had to go and have a drug test before they hired you. I had no idea what that was all about. Um, so d- does that still happen? Because, because I could certainly imagine a lot of the these young, earnest people going, OK, w- what impact will this have on my career? I don't think with no. us. It, a hmm? lot of government jobs still require. Yeah. They either have random drug testing or they do have <laughs> mandatory drug testing as part of your job application it's process. Like, That's like being pretty- a college athlete. Like exactly. you consent to being forcibly required to do it. I think I've only had to do it once when I worked in a factory in high school. Mm-hmm. I was an injection molder. And I knew the owner of the company, but I still had to pee in the cup. Um it was my if you don't graduate from college, you're going to work in a factory job that my dad set up. So, but no, I mean, see, see, but that's the thing is you, you you pee in the cup. You could pee, you know, straight bourbon, and you'd still get the job, right? But if there's like trace elements of pot, it's strange like, I'm fact, sorry. I pee straight. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is going downhill, yeah, this gentlemen. Is going, but no, but no, I, but I think you're by, you're, you're, you're by hitting, the end by the end of this Thanksgiving weekend, I think I will be peeing straight bourbon. I'm just, just but, saying. But you're getting you're hitting at a point though that well, I'm um, reading Epictetus. Well, while while a lot of these states and a lot of states had marijuana legalization either for medical purposes or for recreation on the ballot this past fall, and they did pretty well. Um, society has not caught up with 
the fast growth of the legalization of marijuana. Alice Lloyd had a good point about like Canada legalized it. What are the drug dogs going to do at the border? You know, what happens to the drug dogs at the end? Yeah. But employers still, I mean, it, I mean, is the next step uh, by marijuana legalization advocates to, uh, you know, propose laws that would make it illegal for employers to uh, yes. discriminate yeah. against them. Yeah. I yeah. suspect that's probably where we're heading. Yeah. And for say, and from a safety perspective, we don't know, there's no standard for what is a legally safe limit for people to have in their system when they're driving, for example, or in D.C., scootering around town, um, and, and the impact on, on younger, the development of younger people's brains. Alice had a good piece on that. And Tony Macias' uh, overview of, you know, the, the kind of business side of this industry that he wrote for us a few months ago, I would call people's attention to that again, because there are a number of social and cultural questions that aren't being asked about this. There's just this, there's this kind of congratulatory feeling of, look at us, we're so enlightened, you know, we're, we're, we're making pot legal rather than, you know, oppressing people and as they pursue their completely healthy high. Um, that's really not all that's going on um, in this, in this development. All the meanwhile, menthol vaping is bad. You know, flavored vapes are bad. Mango vaping is yeah. bad. <laughs> well, that, that that is fascinating. How you know, on the on the one hand, we have essentially turned all smoking, you know, into a form of you know active social leprosy, but we're still encouraging all of this. I guess I'm I'm a little squishier than than uh, the rest of the folks on this. I may be I may be the the sole member of the pro pot caucus on the in the Weekly Standard. <laughs> I don't know. We're it's just we're just drug warrior proposed. realists over here. You know, we're not like Cold War drug warriors. I mean, we're just realists, Charlie. We're we're asking the tough questions. Okay, we we need to be more constructive here. Um, we we did talk about the you know forced performance of going around the table and saying what we were thankful for. But Jim, you had a suggestion um, a little bit earlier before we we started this about if you didn't want to do that as a Thanksgiving ritual. Oh, maybe you, we can get something else started. Oh yeah, you can do the opposite, and you can talk okay. about like what you hate the most because if every, who who you hate who who. Who? I mean, that would make for an, an epic Thanksgiving family dinner. Okay. Um, okay, so who would you go? Let's let's go around the table. Christine, you can think about this now. I, I've got my answer here. No, just does somebody want to? Doesn't have to be hate. Hate seems too. That doesn't seem like really in the spirit of the holiday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so just somebody you want to drag. Somebody you're 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 not thankful for. I'm not thankful for blank. See, I just want to say Michael Avenatti. You know, yeah, because I just think one. this guy has got to go away. He's a turkey. You know, yeah. he, he just he just represents everything that is and 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 what he represents in the culture and in politics. And it's just like, just stop it. I mean, there are so many other candidates here. I mean, this yeah. is a target rich environment, which is yeah. why, you know, if you had 20 or 30 people around the Thanksgiving table, you know, you could you could play the Avenatti card. But you know that somebody else has got something good, too. Yeah, I would say Charlie Kirk. Charlie, mm. Char- Charlie, it's like the free Good. beacon man of the year. You know, I mean, who who's the person that you just kind of like month after month, time after time, you just see what these people are, you know, what, like this guy's up to. And you're just like, man, I really don't like that guy. And that, for me, it's Charlie Kirk. I mean, he's he's so well, and he does real damage. Yeah. I mean, you know, he, 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 he talks these, you know, 70 year old rich guys into thinking that th- this is how you appeal to young college students and they give him lots of money. Yeah, you know, and it's not to say he's not successful. He's also poisoning the minds of these these young kids, and they they're going to think that 
becoming instantaneous heroes of the social media. You know, I mean, you're 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 going to get your 15 seconds of fame quickly, and just no. I, I think he sells them a, a false bill of goods as to what it means okay. to be a conservative. That's actually even better than Michael Avenatti. Okay, Christine. Okay, so mine isn't an individual, although it encompasses individuals. It's a category that we've seen far too much of recently, and that is the sore political loser. That's my nomination. I include in there Gillum in Florida, Stacey Abrams in Georgia. There's many, many more. And this is this is bipartisan. There are plenty of sore losers on the right and on the left, but recently we've seen them more on the left. And the reason I really dislike this particular category of person um, is that we used to have some standard wasn't a high standard, but we had a standard for behavior when someone lost an election. They could be a little grumbly, they could complain, but they shuffled off the stage and, you know, mm-hmm. they came back to fight another day. And and this is actually one of the most beautiful and, and, and unheralded aspects of our democratic system that has worked extremely well for a very long time. And then you, you know, sell your memoir and, and cash in on your loss. But this is changing. And I I have deep concerns about what it's doing to just our sense of civic obligation and responsibility, what it's doing to, you know, future potential politicians who might want, um, who might look at, for example, people who say this is th- this lection- election because I lost is not legitimate that you 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 should not be saying that that's not huh. appropriate and so that new kind of political loser bothers me. So this Thanksgiving, I would urge all Americans to cultivate in their kids um, a talent for graciously losing because we all lose sometimes. We all make mistakes. We all at some point have to acknowledge failure. And as we can see in public life right now, that's not one of the skill sets our political leaders have. Well, I just want to go on record saying Christine was not given um, a a heads up that we were going to ask that question. And yet you nailed it. It's like you were preparing. (laughs) It, it's like you stayed up late last night. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Preparing all of this. I'm actually going to try this at uh, at Thanksgiving dinner. This is pretty good. Yeah, what are, what are uh, you unthankful and, and, for? And just, and just throw out there, still the Dinesh D'Souza card. There's still Steve King. There's still all of those guys. It's mm-hmm. it's not something that you would exhaust. Um, there's, there's you know, it's, it is sort of like uh, it is the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, today's Daily Standard podcast is brought to you by Quip. When you think of the perfect gift, you probably don't think of an electric toothbrush. But the Quip electric toothbrush is one of the most gift-guided gifts of the season. And here's why. It's perfect for everybody with a mouth. And it's something that they will use twice a day. And here's why Quip is great. Sensitive sonic vibrations, gentle enough on your sensitive gums, built-in timer with guiding pulses to remind you when to switch sides. Quip makes holiday travels clean and easy with a multi-use cover that mounts to mirrors and unmounts to slide over the bristles for on-the-go brushing. Look, this is why I love Quip and why they have more than 5,000 verified five-star reviews. Quip looks like a big tick, a big ticket tech gift, but it is not. It starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash standard right now, you will get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. But you don't have to tell your gifty that. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash standard, G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash standard. Christine Rosen, Jim Swift, thank you so much, and uh, have a happy Thanksgiving. And let me know afterwards whether or not uh, you you do the go around the table what you're thankful for or uh, who you're not thankful for, because uh, I'm, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna try it and probably annoy everybody at my uh, Thanksgiving dinner. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard podcast. We're gonna be off for the four day weekend. We'll be back on Monday, and we'll do this all over again.